0: from?
1: Iowa. Oh, landlubber. Come on, what the hell were you guys really trying to do back there? It wasn't some kind of macho thing, was it? Because if that's all, I'll be real disappointed. I really hate that macho stuff.
2: Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jera, and thanks for tuning in. Before we get started with our discussion for today, I wanted to let our listeners know about an exciting new development, which is that Women at Warp has joined the Trek.fm podcast network. This means that you can now find us in a lot more places. Women at Warp can now be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Windows Phone, SoundCloud, and in the Trek FM Complete Master Feed, in addition to all the places you used to be able to find us. Women at Warp can also now be found in the Trek.fm artist section in iTunes as they are a featured content provider. We're excited about this development. We're going to keep bringing you the same types of discussions with the same hosts in the same format. Only now we'll be part of a network of podcasts, um, and we encourage you to check them out. So uh, thanks a lot for sticking with us. And if you have any questions about this, feel free to email us at crew at women at warp.com. With us today, we have the rest of our crew, Andy, Sue, and Grace. Hi, guys. Hi. Hiya. Hey. So today, we are going to go back to the good old days, to the days before it was boldly going where no one has gone before, and just boldly going where no man has gone before. The classic TOS movies. Oh boy. So we're going to be looking at Star Trek The Motion Picture through Star Trek VI and talking about some of the women characters, as well as just overall what how we think the movies portrayed women. I, sorry, I'm actually just going to mention that because there's so much to cover in these six movies, we are going to skip fan mail for today, and we will get back to it next episode. So... Uh, Andy do you want to start off with Ailea and the motion picture because I think you're the one who has watched it most recently
3: um yeah so I just finished my watch of the original series movies literally today so uh, I saw the motion picture a couple weeks ago
0: it takes a couple weeks to get through doesn't it
3: I it felt like it uh, no I did really actually enjoy the motion picture uh, even though half my Twitter timeline told me that I was going to hate it and yeah I'm pretty sure 45 minutes of it are very slow establishing shots, but I ended up liking the, I don't know, the premise, I guess. As for this female character, I just, I don't even really know where to start with her. So I guess we can start with the fact that I, I, the Delton race in general, and kind of the concept of this race that's, I don't know, very sensual, I guess we could call it something like that. Yeah, I mean, don't they say that basically people have to watch out because
2: their pheromones or something are so strong and they're so sensual that especially men just can't
3: control themselves?
2: Wow.
3: Yeah, and I don't know that I really dig that as a concept.
1: As we say with a lot of things like this, uh, that race is treated
0: better in the books. You don't say.
1: Yeah, and it's not just, you know, the men around the women in the books either. But there are a few Dalton characters in, in one of the stories and it actually becomes interesting and not terrible.
3: So a step up then. So
2: I mean the characters of Decker and Ilea were originally created for the sort of failed Star Trek 2 series and then when they were creating The Next Generation they had originally planned Troy to be uh, Dalton but then they created the Betazoids to sort of have more of an emphasis on empathy and telepathy but we sort of see some of that sort of
0: also an emphasis on enormous hair
2: yeah except (laughs) well that's the opposite of Ilya, i guess (laughs) yeah but uh we get to see that same sort of you know they're so sensual and in touch with their feelings um that in deep space nine when they go through menopause men can't control themselves (laughs) actually no one can even women um so that's cool i guess Equal opportunity, people not being able to control themselves because of women's sexuality.
3: Horniness for everyone! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So I got the sense that, and a couple of people tweeted me that this was supposed to be like Riker and Troy part one, or like take one. I'm glad they did take two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like this decker Ilya thing was supposed to be what we ended up getting in TNG, or that was the plan at least.
2: Yeah, it's... Well, like I said, glad they glad they gave it a second shot there. I mean, not because the first one was so good it deserved a second shot, but because the first one was so bad that anything would have been better.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of Decker's character I actually legitimately hated. I was really, really thrown by the fact that it was... Played by steven collins who is one of my least favorite actors on the planet at like him as a human is really terrible so it's hard for me to see him in anything ever again without going ew so it was hard for me to like separate steven collins the creepy predator actor from decker this character so i don't know how much of it i was i was imagining or not
2: um, I mean, I didn't know that about Stephen Collins, um, about his admitted sexual abuse of minors um, until after I saw your tweets. And yeah, it definitely affects how I would watch the movie in the future. But I mean, I don't think it affects how I see Ailea really. I mean, she's just like, I don't know. She just doesn't
3: really do anything for women. I don't think. She doesn't really do much at all. And I also don't understand why when she is turned into the probe, why she would be wearing high heels and a short bathrobe miniskirt type deal. I think because Gene Roddenberry
2: was still heavily involved with this movie. Although I don't understand why everyone else is wearing like awful bland colored unitards that are really unflattering in every way. Space pajamas. Exactly. All right. Well, unless we have any other compelling thoughts on Aelia, let's move on to a more significant and I think undisputably better female character, Savic.
1: Well, I do have a really quick note. That is not about Ilea, but is about the motion picture. You could blink and you miss it, but they do refer to Christine Chapel as Dr. Chapel for, I believe, the very first time towards the end of the movie. Well,
0: good for her!
2: Well, that's cool, because, yeah, Magell is in that movie, right? And is uh, Grace Lee Whitney in that one as well, or is she just in the later one? Yeah, she's the transporter chief. Yeah. So
1: both of them have had either additional education or promotions or something since the original series. So they're, they're tiny little things, but they're there, which is nice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, significant. You know, actually, it was weird. I found an interview with Grace Lee Whitney, who sadly we lost recently. Um, but she was saying that in the last movie she did, um, which was, I guess, Star Trek VI, they listed her as Commander Rand. And she said that she thought it was really unrealistic that... Rand would have ever sort of advanced to that level in the ranks but I mean I guess I think it's cool because her role as we have talked about in the original series was fairly unremarkable in
3: terms of gender roles
0: pretty much yeah at least she got to wear that nice basket
3: <laughs> the beehive yeah it's too bad too because rand actually or i should say greasley whitney was actually a very good actress and mm-hmm. as much as i hate the enemy within her acting in that episode is really good yeah uh, well shall we go on to Savick then sure yeah, absolutely who wants? Who
2: wants to kick it off with Kirsty
3: uh, Alley savik in Wrath of Khan? I, I mean, when I first saw it, I, I recognized her voice before I even saw her because they start with her like captain's log, and then I'm like, wait a second, Captain Kirsty Alley, and I was really excited. And then, and then apparently the entire crew dies, and I was like, did Kirsty Alley just kill our crew? I was really confused. <laughs> 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 I have a hard
1: time not seeing her as Rebecca on Cheers. Even with the pointy ears on. I I have a hard
0: time not seeing her as current modern Kirstie Alley, like (laughs) a spokeswoman and, uh, you know, just kind of a Hollywood character right now.
3: I I liked her portrayal. I thought she had a kind of softness to her, even though she was a Vulcan. And I I just, in general, liked the character. I did too.
0: I just, uh, I really liked the way her performance has this great kind of balance of uh, empathy and aloofness, which I think is really hard to do.
3: Yeah. I didn't realize, but apparently she's supposed to be half Romulan and half Vulcan? Is that-
0: Yes, she is. I think that was her original
1: concept, but they got rid of that, or at least they, they cut the scene if they didn't
0: change the script. But that is why she's crying during Spock's funeral.
2: Yeah, originally they had it planned as part of an arc going up to Star Trek Six, and we'll talk about Valeris in a bit, but that was originally supposed to be Savik, so then they thought they were sort of building up- to make sense that she would have complicated allegiances to the Vulcans and the Romulans or the Romulans and the Federation. So yeah, I mean, I, um, I think uh, Kirstie Ellie does a good job. She talks about and interviews how she was such a huge Trekkie as a kid and she used to stand in front of the mirror and try to make the one eyebrow go up like Spock. <laughs> I totally yeah. used to do that too, only I just never succeeded. <laughs> I too could have been Savic. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think in Wrath of Khan she she gets some cool stuff to do, and she is. I I argue like I don't know if any of you ever heard of the Macomori test, but it's sort of a yeah, definitely proposed uh replacement for the Bechdel test. It is based on Macomori and Pacific Rim, and it basically says that in order to pass, a, there must be a, a named. A woman character who has her own narrative arc. And I would argue that she comes, she's one of the people who comes closest in the classic movies. Um, I mean, she definitely is intimately connected with Kirk and Spock in their roles in her story, but I don't think she is supporting their story. I think she has her own narrative. Yeah.
3: And I also like that she is basically the only new addition to the crew, and yet she kind of fits in with them. Because, I mean, at yeah. this point, they we feel so strongly about this crew and, like, their dynamics are so set at this point that I think it's pretty hard to, to insert a new character and not have people resent her. And she did a good job of that, and the writing did a good job of making her an important part of the story. And that like totally changing the dynamics of the the crew that we love.
0: Or making her the new kid too much.
3: Uh, So uh, in Star Trek 3,
2: obviously the actress changed and we got Robin Curtis as Savick in 3 and
3: a little bit of 4. So what did you guys think about uh, Savick in Star Trek 3? The first time I saw her, I was like, face transplant. Because it was like jarring for me because I actually saw them right after each other. And I was like, that's not Kirstie Alley. I'm confused. But um, I thought she did a good job, too. She was a little colder. Yeah, she said that she spent a lot of
2: time with Leonard Nimoy getting coaching on how to be Vulcan and what it meant to be Vulcan. And uh, I think that you could see that come through. And I know there's a lot of people who passionately believe that she is not as good as Kirstie Alley, but I thought she was totally fine.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought she did a good job. And you can't get a much better acting coach in being Vulcan than Leonard Nimoy.
1: I actually kind of like that she is... I guess, colder, you know, because you say Christy Alley is softer, but she's the first Vulcan woman, really. I mean, other than, than a few short, not so great things in the original series that we see in Starfleet, right? And to have the, the very first woman that we get a long amount of time with be automatically softer and maybe a little bit more emotional, that, you know, sort of speaks for the culture and that differentiates the women and making them more emotional and making them softer than the men in the Vulcan culture. So I actually didn't like that Christy Alley was a little bit, you know, not as a Vulcan Vulcan as you would say Spock is. Does that make sense?
3: Absolutely. I think that both ways... Worked for the movie, but I I definitely agree with you that she was different than your average Vulcan. The first time we see her, um, and Kirstie Alley played her a little more human, and Robin Curtis played her a little more Vulcan. And I could see preferring either performance. To be honest, I think that it
2: was important that she didn't come across as weak, and I don't think she did. I think that Wrath of Khan was really the character's high point, not because of the actress necessarily, um, but because of just what she was given to do. Unfortunately, I don't think she got as good stuff to do in Star Trek 3. This sort of ties into the next character we're going to talk about, but I have a quote from science fiction author A.C. Crispin, um, and she reviewed Star Trek 3 in 1984. She's also written a lot of Star Trek uh, novels, um, and she um, wrote, My third and biggest problem with the search for Spock was with the treatment of two women in the film. In The Wrath of Khan, there were many women in evidence, and two women had major roles, Savick and Carol Marcus. In Search, there was only one female present during the film's significant action, Savick. Carol Marcus had mysteriously vanished, and her role as the scientific genius who created the Genesis Effect had been usurped by David Marcus, her son, and Kirks, of course. Throughout search, cry baby stuff. <laughs> throughout search, David was referred to as the sole creator slash inventor of Genesis. In addition to being a major stumbling block insofar as continuity is concerned, I feel the omission reflected a return to the male dominant view of the Federation we saw in the 60s on Aired Trek. So she also says basically she felt like um, Savick's only job in that movie was to kind of help Spock through, young Spock through Ponfar, which is a little questionable
3: A little questionable. It's creepy. Let's just go
0: out and say it's hella creepy.
3: I was horrified.
0: It's so uncomfortable to watch.
3: (laughs) I I was just like ah. "Ah." No so this is one of the examples of when I'm tweeting and I I miss something. So I didn't realize like that I don't even know what they did. Like I got a bunch of tweets that were like did you miss the fact that Savic and Spock just had sex. And I was like, what? And then it turns out that there's some debate. I mean, some of my followers were like, no, 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 no. She just touched him a little bit. And I was like, either way. Uh, gross. How is that better? So I was just like, there was like four tweets in a row where I was like, ew. I'm like okay he's so little and he looks 14 Ugh. so I was really really disturbed by it and I don't understand why it was necessary I really don't
0: uh Vulcans what are you guys doing yeah also we got so we got that and the fact that Carol Marcus pretty much got Rosalind Franklin in this movie which is such a bummer
3: do we want to talk about the better portrayal of carol marcus and wrath of khan first because we didn't get a chance yes, to really discuss that. sure i just have something
2: super quick though on the savage stuff before we move off of her um which is that this is further from this ac crispin review that she says you know a further slight of women in search was that amanda spock's mother and Sarek's wife was not even mentioned and that uh, for all of the slights and omissions I noted toward women in Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, none sent my blood pressure up as rapidly as a scene on Spock's home planet in which we were treated to the sight of Vulcan priestesses sporting diaphanous gowns more appropriately found in a seraglio, seraglio, seraglio I guess, than in a solemn, dangerous rite with religious overtones. This vision of Vulcan women dressed in such a ridiculous fashion wasn't only sexist, it was also completely illogical. Those gauzy split-to-the-thigh gowns were utterly inappropriate for the Vulcan climate. None of the priests wore them, of course. So, yeah. yeah. Illogical Vulcan ladies. That, I mean, that goes back to um, a mock time for sure, but uh, is... I kind of dug
3: their outfits, to be honest, but... I mean, I can see why why someone would have problems with him.
0: I could have dug it in a different context. But... I think
3: that there's a long
2: problem, like, through Enterprise of Vulcan women dressing in ways that are totally illogical for basically, <laughs> like, because we have to emphasize their femininity or their sex appeal to men. And... That is what bothers me. Like, it's not the fact that there are, like, cool-looking outfits. (laughs) But it's just like, you need to have a reason.
0: It keeps reminding me of this double standard that we keep seeing, that Vulcan men are the epitome of logic, and Vulcan women are a fan service. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah,
3: like they they also kind of represent the mysticism side way more. yeah. And like the ritual mysticism side. Even even when we see them in the original series.
2: Yeah, and that's in the comics as well as I think the novels. Like there's definitely like a emphasis on women as priestesses. Anyway, we can go back to Carol Marcus now in Ra- uh, in uh, Wrath of Khan. Jerry, you really like
3: her in Wrath of Khan, don't you? Oh, I love her. Um <laughs> I thought so. She's the best. <laughs> I love that she keeps her clothes on in these movies. I mean, what? No.
2: She's like a love interest <laughs> for Kirk, who is like never sexualized in any way. She's just, she, she's super smart. She's, uh, she has a really strong
3: sense of ethics, and yeah, I just really love her. That's not to love. Yeah, I mean, she stands up for what she believes in quite strongly in this movie. She's ready to basically defy the entire federation pretty much which is hardcore because i mean she could suffer a lot of consequences for defying the federation carol marcus don't care carol marcus
0: does what she wants
3: (laughs) yeah i really liked her too um and i I mean the at first i was like okay cool she's a scientist and then i was like mm, okay surprising no one she used to hook up with kirk But it ended up being good. I mean, she's a really strong-willed, competent person. And her storyline wasn't solely dependent on Kirk. I mean, she had her own stuff going on and her own arc and her own growth happening. So yeah, I, I I would agree that she is definitely one of the best female portrayals we see in the original series movies.
2: Um, so then yeah, it is kind of unfortunate that like Grace was saying, she gets Rosalind Franklin out of Star Trek three and also
0: can we start using Rosalind Franklin as a verb? Yep, because I think it works. We can
3: add it to the Mac-O-Mori test. Yeah! We already have. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get to use it again
2: in the TNG movies, but I won't give away the spoilers. <laughs>
3: Oh, joy. (laughs) Yay.
0: More of this.
2: (laughs) Yep. Um, but I mean not just that she gets denied the scientific credit for the Genesis project but um, B.B. Bash also just said "Um, I feel disappointed that I never got a chance to complete my relationship with Jim Kirk vis-a-vis the death of our son my sense about it was that they needed to keep Captain Kirk unencumbered in any way and I think that's why I wasn't in Star Trek 3 it's part of the Kirk mythology that he be the lone ranger out there by himself battling the elements
0: Which is bogus, because it was so cool in Wrath of Khan to see this woman who's kind of on equal footing with him and is as much a force of nature as he is, and to just cut her out of what could be this really intense story about Kirk losing his son just really diminishes the gravitas of the whole thing, and is part of why people see that movie as the one where Kirk's son dies and no one really cares.
3: Yeah, I mean, she raised him alone. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, obviously Kirk feels strongly about the death of his son and who wouldn't, but he was not involved in him. Growing up.
0: I want to see the backlash on that. I want to see her coming after Kirk like, you killed our son. I want to see what would happen
3: that. With could that could have been really intense and really amazing uh, characterization for both of them.
1: Yeah. What's interesting about that quote to me is that the thinking didn't change when they went in to make the TNG movies. Like, that whole unencumbered, the captain has to be unencumbered idea is why the TNG episode attached ended the way it did. And that is your weekly point from the card crusher shipper.
2: <laughs> well, I mean Carol Marcus just can't climb a mountain like Kirk can. <laughs>
3: oh my god.
0: <laughs> Who would let themselves climb a mountain like Kirk? For God's <laughs> sake, he's climbing El Capitan without any gear. He's gonna fall down and
1: die. I am... To embrace that mountain.
0: No, no, no. For an episode of All Things Trek that we did on this movie, I was actually able to get in touch with a mountain climber, a semi-professional mountain climber I know, and ask him about that. And he was like, oh, he would have been toast. Thank God Spock showed up. He would have been so boned.
1: (laughs) With those gravity boots that we never saw before or after.
0: (laughs) But he's not a Trekkie, so of course he referred to it as uh, his friend with the magic boots showed up. (laughs) Which is one of my favorite things to have ever come out of all things Trek.
2: The first 20 minutes of that movie are basically just the Enterprise men asserting their masculinity to the point of stupidity. You also have like Sulu and Chekhov getting lost and being too embarrassed to ask for directions.
1: You guys have seen the the remix of of Kirk on the Mount, right? Yeah, of course. Right? Okay. Just making sure.
3: I will have to look it up.
1: (laughs) Just, Andy, as soon as we're done, just YouTube Shatner on the Mount. Okay, Shatner
3: on the Mount. Will do. Okay,
1: (laughs) Shatner on the Mount.
0: He's had a couple of them. We've seen all his love interests. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) shh. Insert your own sad trombone
3: here. Jared's like, we need to talk about Star Trek 4.
2: <laughs> or we could just finish talking about Star Trek 5 because there's not that much else to go on. I was rewatching it this morning to watch the part where Captain Kirk drowns the three-rested
3: Catwoman sex worker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on in that scene. I was like, something furry. I don't what know. What the
0: hell is happening here? That was my reaction to the entire movie, though.
2: So um, it's totally a blink and you'll miss it moment, but basically like, there's this sort of smuggler's den that is very much like, I think Sue pointed out in her live blog, the Mos Eisley Cantina from Star Wars.
1: Yeah, they do that a lot in these movies. Except
2: terrible. And there is a cat woman dancer, pole dancer, with three (laughs) breasts, um, which are all like inexplicably where human breasts would be, even though like she's part cat. So I don't really I'm like, why do they always have to have their boobs where human boobs would be? But anyway, and
0: I've got some things to say about that. If we uh, want to come back to that
2: more boob talk, please.
0: Well, apparently, apparently the fact it was a selling point for this movie that they're like, okay, we got to do this and this and this. But there's gotta be a chick with three boobs. Aliens. We gotta do that. That's the thing we have to have.
2: Why am I not surprised?
0: Yeah, that was like one of the, we can change whatever we want. This stays moments, apparently, in the planning of the movie. So it
2: was like the Carol Marcus bra scene, only like less obvious?
0: This part actually offends me more than the Carol Marcus thing, because they kill a sex worker. That's why it makes me think of the shapeshifter, because she's the
1: first person I can remember in Star Trek actually saying, well, not everybody's sex organs are in the same place.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Even though boobs are secondary sex characteristics. Yeah. Still, it's funny.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. But when the Enterprise people invade the place in Paradise City, God, i why do they have to call it Paradise City?
0: Take me down to the Paradise City where the. Grow- is green and the girls, are, and pretty. The girls are pretty oh, won't just taste it? where the grass is green and the girls got three titties <laughs>
2: yeah thank you <laughs> um so this cat woman who like never gets a name obviously because it's like just enough for the audience to know that she's a sex worker like that's basically she's dehumanized in addition to the fact that she's a cat by the fact that she's a sex worker and then she jumps on Kirk when Kirk is running into this thing And he basically, like, lifts her up and, like, hurls her into this pool. And it's not really clear whether she's dead, but they leave her lying what appears to be face down in the pool, totally unconscious. Um, It's kind of dark, so you can't say that for sure. But certainly, like, they do not seem concerned that he might have just killed This person who maybe was like a totally innocent bystander. And it's, yeah, just like a disposable sex worker. And it was really gross.
0: Again, that's why I've got more problems with this movie's sexism than Into Darkness. Just the fact that it's like, oh my God, he just killed that woman and we're not supposed to care at all. It's just me. Per- my personal preference, though, I hold keeping tomism slightly lower than murderer,
3: though. Yeah, no, I just meant in the marketing,
2: like that you were saying that they were like, this has to be in.
3: Yep. Boobies. I just picture these pitch meetings and everyone's like, well, boobs. Gotta have more boobs. More boobs is better.
0: More boobs. More boobs, the better. Three times the boobs. Three times
2: the fun. The proportion of boobs in this movie is still distinctly less than the Captain Kirk climbing a mountain parts. Like, that is like a good 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> there is a boob to mountain ratio in this movie that is unsettling. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, so shall we go back to Star Trek 4 and talk about
3: the inimitable Jillian Taylor? Yeah, I love her. Yeah, let's do it. My favorite thing about her is, is she has this amazing line. Okay, so first of all, she's a whale scientist. That's awesome. And we get to see her do her job more than once and be passionate about her job, which, awesome. And then when they take the whales away and she like slaps that guy and is like Mrah and then oh there's this great line she has where she's like i don't know about you but my estimation of somebody isn't based on their intelligence or something like that and it's a yeah, great, line. A great line and i was just like yes just because the whales might not be as smart as people doesn't mean that their lives are worth nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely.
2: She's great. Yeah, she says, my compassion for someone is not limited to my estimate of their intelligence. Way better than what I said. I mean, I don't love the scene where she slaps the guy. I think, like, it's a little over the top, and
1: yeah. he deserved it. Well, she should punch him, right? Yeah. Not just
2: slap him. <laughs> I mean, the movie is one of my favorites as a kid, and there's a lot that is just like, it's it's funny ridiculous and I feel like very endearing towards it but it's ridiculous. <laughs> But, um, I mean, I love that she is one of the few Captain Kirk's love interests who totally leaves on her own terms.
0: Yeah, she's got bigger fish to fry, if you'll excuse the <laughs> joke.
2: Like, she gets to come back to the 23rd century, and basically he's like, want to go out? And she's like, mm, no, I got this cool new job now in this awesome, sassy uh, spacesuit with with like, the purple and the planet patch, and I'm going to teach everyone about
3: whales. And he's like, okay. <laughs> See so you around the galaxy. Yeah, no, I just, I just like her. She's got spirit. She also has that scene where she picks uh, Spock and Kirk up in, they're in the, the truck and driving around and she's like, you're not from the military, right? You're not going to try and use the whales to like find missiles or anything dipshit like that. And I just love that line no ma'am no dipshit the only thing i was disappointed about was i was reading this
2: katherine hicks interview from 1987 around the release of the movie and she was saying she was like really defensive about the scene where she slaps the guy saying i didn't want to use this part to say this is how angry women can be and how attached they can be to their work i don't want jillian to come across as an angry feminist marine biologist and i'm certainly not an angry feminist actress you. Why the hell not? Thanks for reaffirming stereotypes that all feminists are angry. I mean, a lot of us are, but for very legitimate reasons. <laughs> We can be angry. That's fine. Yeah, but it seemed like she was just, yeah, I'm going to slap this guy, but just so you know, I'm not a feminist. Yeah, that's that's disappointing. Anyway, but she also continued to say that women have grown up, you know, basically socialized not to be physically violent, and so sometimes women do have to just, like, get out their anger, so that was kind of cool that she was conscious of that, but just a side note on Jillian Taylor. I thought of her as a feminist character, personally.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I did, too. So...
2: If there's nothing else on Star Trek 4, let's uh, skip to Valeris in Star Trek 6. Let's do it.
3: Another Vulcan woman.
2: Yeah. Wait, did they end up saying that she's half Romulan? Or... No,
3: I think they cut it. Yeah. Badass headbands. Awesome undercut. Kim Cattrall. I guess I didn't know that the character was gonna be Savic, but I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it would have made more sense and it would have had more of a dramatic impact when she betrays everyone.
0: It really would have, because from the beginning we don't get any real reason in this movie to feel like she's that trustworthy except from the fact that she's just helping everyone, which feels a little convenient <laughs> throughout the movie.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit surprised, but I also was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And it didn't hurt or anything. You know, I feel like if Savik had been that character, it would have hurt because, you know, she had been through things with this crew. And, you know,
0: it would have been more of a betrayal. Yeah,
3: yeah, there would have been more of an emotional impact to her turning out to be the betrayer. So I'm kind of sad that didn't work out. Do we know why they
2: didn't? Yeah, so they brought back Nicholas Meyer, who directed Wrath of Khan, and he really didn't like Robin Curtis. So he wanted Kirstie Alley back, but that just wasn't going to happen but he saw Robin Curtis as like Nimoy's choice for the role and he didn't agree with it he wanted to put his own stamp on the movie and he had wanted to bring Kim Cattrall in for a role previously so apparently Robin Curtis found out because she saw the casting notice for her part and it was still at that point called Savic. and someone called her and was that like they're cold. casting for your part um, for Star Trek that is really Six. cold. Yeah. Um, and then obviously they changed uh, the name. Um, I think Kim Cattrall did a good job, but yeah, it would have had so much more impact if it was savage
0: I think she did a very good job and um, seeing her in this role is kind of a sad reminder of the fact that she has been uh, so intensely typecast after doing Sex in the City and supposedly she kind of hates that role because that's all people really see her as now, which is sad because we see in this role that she has some versatility that's very good.
3: The casting in this movie is... Is bonkers.
2: Yeah, Kim Cattrall actually originally turned down the role. So the reason that she said, which is stated in a 1982 interview, I just felt that the way women were portrayed in those movies were either leg furniture, real bitches, or basically extras, and you never really felt for them. But then she was sort of convinced that you would get to put your stamp on this character. And I think she really tried to and was assisted by the writing to show that she has a motivation. Um, She has a reason for doing what she's doing. Uh, And I think she did a really good job.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that overall, she's a good character. I mean, she has a very specific goal and arc. And again, another competent character, which is always good. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much that I have a problem with her as an actress. And I think she did a good job acting in this role. It's just the emotional impact. What could have been?
0: We'll always wonder what could have
2: been. (laughs) Totally. And then, I mean, we have to talk about the scene. I'm a really big fan of Star Trek 6, but uh, the scene where Spock essentially uh, psychically assaults Valeris on the bridge, because that is super disturbing. You
1: can't not talk about it. It's so uncomfortable. And I try and understand why they went that far, but it's just, I don't like it. I don't even know what else to say. It's just
3: upsetting. Do you mean the writing, or do you mean Spot,
2: or both? Well, I mean both. I mean, I'm, it's it's disturbing because you see, like on her face, that she's really in pain. This is also something that is happening publicly, yeah. yeah, by a man who is older and in a position of power over her, both in rank and in terms of being her former mentor and is literally invading her in front of other people. And, like, we get to see just a really, like, a flash of concern about that, but we don't really get, like, I would like to see, at minimum, if we had to watch that scene, for Spock to be agonizing about what that meant to have to do that, because that is a serious thing to have to do. And basically the argument is just the ends justify the means.
3: Yeah, I mean... I can see why... I mean, the stakes are high. And he does have this power at his disposal. But you're right that the way that it was staged and the power structure at play here is very disturbing.
1: But don't they also get the same information
3: elsewhere just shortly after that? Doesn't it turn out to be totally unnecessary? Um, no. I mean, Sulu comes to tell them where Kitamar is happening. But they don't know who is involved with the plot without her. I guess they could have still found out with more investigation. And the really important thing was finding out where everybody was and that they got from Sulu. So you could make an argument that they didn't need the information they got from her.
2: Or, you know, at the end, like, I think, you know, we should have seen that Spock um, had to face like a court-martial to judge whether his actions were justified because, like I said, like that is an assault and the way that it happened was very disturbing. There has to be accountability.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, don't they just basically take off at the end anyway? So who would have investigated that?
2: Yeah, and I would have thought that Spock would be the kind of person or I would like him to be the kind of person who would turn himself in and say, like, I need to be held accountable for what I did. I believed it was right and logical. Yeah. Cool but it was, you know, a seriously bad thing to do.
0: Yeah, even the fact that uh, the lack of addressing for this after it happens is what makes it so uncomfortable for me. Just the fact that it happens and we don't talk about it.
2: Spock's ethics are kind of all over the place in the movies. Like, he won't allow Kirk to kill Cyborg and, like, doesn't tell him why and allows Cyborg to take over the Enterprise, but yet I was also, like, totally cool with leaving the Catwoman face down in a pool of water and then, uh, like, cool with assaulting Valeris, so.
0: You'd almost I swear, he was written inconsistently by a multitude of people.
2: Anyway, I want to take a look at Uhura just sort of generally across all the movies. But there are more issues with Star Trek VI. Go for it. <laughs> well, just
1: apparently that Starfleet is super racist, um, which is like the first 20 minutes of the
3: movie. <laughs> Towards Klingons, you mean? I don't yeah. know what
0: you're talking about.
3: <laughs> Valeris does have a great scene where, you know, we see the, the two not officers, Mm -hmm. random people. Starfleet people, yeah. Yeah, Starfleet guys talking about how gross Klingons are and EU Klingons and they're actually very straight up racist in that and she doesn't even say a word and she just takes them down and it's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Like, she's not here for your racism, man. But the whole, what's the word, diplomatic dinner scene
1: is just so upsetting.
3: I really like it, though.
2: (laughs) I think, I don't think it comes out of nowhere because we see, like, the, the backstory with the way Klingons are portrayed in the original series is is like painting them as caricatures. um, And with racial overtones, the fact they're like all in brown face with like vaguely stereotypically Asian facial hair. And then you tying it into the death of Kirk's son and the history of war. I I think it was important to show that the onus wasn't all on the Klingons to change.
1: It's true. Yeah, but it's also still really frustrating.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's the awkwardest dinner party in history. That's for sure.
1: How do you even say her name, though? The Klingon woman, azetbur burr azit whatever. She's awesome. Yeah. I will yeah. give you that. Because she, she's the one sitting at that dinner being
3: like, really? That's what you think? Well, how about this? Okay. Yeah, she totally calls out their language choices. Just like inalienable human rights. Okay. I mean, everything you're saying yeah. is crap.
1: Yeah. In my live blog, I added hashtag not all humans.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah awesome. I mean, she literally calls them racist. And yeah. I think that that's cool. I think it was forcing people to confront um, not just the feelings um, around the Cold War, which is it's obviously an allusion to, but also feelings about um, other types of racism.
3: Yeah, I, I, I like that the cap of that scene is basically Spock being like, you guys suck. You ruined that.
2: (laughs) Well,
0: way to human it up,
3: guys. (laughs) I just like his disappointment in them. (laughs) Well, wouldn't you be? tisk tisk? Yes. I I mean, yes. Yeah, and it is important to show that people
2: had a choice. You had a choice whether you were going to like sit aside and say nothing, whether you were going to openly disapprove, um, whether you were going to actively resist the system. and, And it shows that there are people in the Federation making all of those different choices on how they're going to. Um, either uphold or challenge the system of racism.
3: Yep, it was good. Uh, it's it's uncomfortable to see that we ha- that our, our crew ha- is racist. I mean, that is uncomfortable.
1: Oh, well, especially because Kirk seems to be pinning it so much on Klingons killed my son like yeah two two movies ago you didn't know you had a son yeah you were <laughs> and you certainly had nothing to do with his life
2: um right but that said i'm glad they came back to it only where the hell was carol marcus again
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah i guess not two movies ago four
2: movies ago <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it would have been another time where they could have shown them dealing with the death of their son. But anyway, any other thoughts on Star Trek 6 It's got Iman in it. Oh, right. We have Martia. You wanted yeah. to talk about Martia, the shapeshifter played by
3: Iman. Iman! Clean Iman. Bow down.
1: Yeah, my only point about her, really, is that she she points out that not all species have their reproductive organs in the same place, which is which is fantastic in Star Trek because... I think that might be
3: the only time it's said. I just love Iman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. she could have been doing anything
2: and I would have been like, yes. I like that she's one of the few shapeshifters we get to see really take on different genders. Um, I yeah, mean, although there's absolutely. that uncomfortably sort of transphobic joke about how Kirk is grossed out by realizing he might have kissed a man. Um, not Iman, Ah, uh. man. <laughs> <laughs> well honestly
0: what would you expect from kirk
2: yeah sadly um but you know we get to see the character play this like seductive woman who's super badass this like little girl this monster guy and then kirk's mm-hmm. doppelganger so we really do get to see the potential of shifting genders and it really destabilizes us seeing someone who's
0: taking full advantage of being able to shape shift is yeah cool. totally. unlike Odo.
2: um but anyway <laughs> Uh, Odo's got his own problems to deal with, okay? Doesn't mean he couldn't be a girl sometimes. Well, that's true. I mean, not to say he should have to, I'm just saying. Um, but... <laughs> that's the gender identity he chose. Yes, but it would have been <laughs> cool to like talk about Hey maybe he'd considered other things and then just decided he felt like that. But anyway, I digress. Uh Iman is fabulous and I am I quite like Martia.
0: Yeah, me too. She's a fun character.
2: Yep. Also, you think Kirk would be happier about
3: kissing himself.
0: <laughs> right? It was his lifelong ambition. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I don't know. I more feel like it's his lifelong ambition to kiss Spock, but maybe that's just me.
0: <laughs> no, no, that, that's definitely there.
3: There's a handful of scenes where they like gaze longingly at each other. And I'm like, just kiss. I mean, just really. do it. Just do it. Just get it over with but I think he
2: also would be perfectly happy to have a relationship with his own clone. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. Yeah.
0: Oh man, can you imagine that sitcom where it's just Kirk married to his clone with a bunch of <laughs> little clone children of himself? We could call it Kirk and clones.
2: Um, I also just forgot a couple quick things and then we'll take a look at Uhura quickly, but I just wanted to uh, dash off that in Star Trek 4 we did see our first woman captain played by Madge Sinclair, who's the captain of the USS Saratoga. And in in Star Trek VI, we also get uh, Rand as the commander on the Excelsior, which is pretty cool. And in Star Trek V, there's also Vixis, the Klingon officer who's sort of claws right-hand person, and super, super amazing muscles.
3: Yeah, I mean, Sulu and Chekhov are basically mesmerized. Yeah, Uh, the actress was a stunt performer as well, Vice
2: Williams, and she said she worked really hard to get her arms just looking incredible like that. And uh, I think it's cool because, like, in terms of Klingon women, she's, I think, really... The only one up until, you know, Ballana that we get to see be really, really tough and look like she could actually kick the snot out of you, not just like have her main strength be conniving like the Duras sisters. I don't know, Kalar is pretty tough. Oh right, I forgot Kalar. But I understand your point. (laughs) As villains, we'll say as villains that the Klingon women, I don't think have got as much opportunity to beat the snot out of people. So yeah, absolutely. So Uhura, Um, I think Star Trek 6 was actually one of her weaker movies in terms of, you know, the part where she suddenly can't speak Klingon and she is supposed to do her job and is trying to read Klingon out of books. I think that was kind of embarrassing. That makes me
3: so angry. I, I was confused by that, because on the one hand, I was like, yeah, Uhura's doing something important, and I didn't... Does, is she meant to speak Klingon? Did I miss that?
1: Well, like in TOS, like in, in this era of Star Trek, which you kind of get more of an explanation in it during Enterprise, since there wasn't a universal translator, your communications officer was multilingual.
3: Oh, okay. Well, then that right? changes that whole scene for me because from for me, I was like, she's learning Klingon on the fly to save the day. Um, but I didn't realize that maybe she should have already ha- known Klingon. It could have been way cooler if she was just... New Klingon and came out of nowhere. She would
0: definitely know Klingon, considering how long she's been working for Starfleet. I okay. think that's, it's kind of a cheap gag at her expense.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think they, they say in the JJ movies, I guess, that she already speaks, like, double digits in languages.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: So yeah, she should, if not f- be fluent in Klingon, I feel like she should at least be able to communicate in non broken
0: sentences so say it's michelle nichols also yeah
2: she doesn't get a lot of else to do in that movie so it's unfortunate that the one part is like being kind of the punchline in the part where it's you know maybe she could be better at her job
3: mm-hmm.
2: um i also I heard that she that. refused to say the guess who's coming to dinner line because she thought that it was too yeah. racially charged
3: um, Yeah. so what other movies do you think about when you think about uhura Like what worked, what didn't. I liked Uhura and Chekhov teaming up to steal nuclear vessels. Yeah, they make a fun team. In Star Trek 4. I I just thought that that was fun.
1: And you do kind of see them have a little bit more camaraderie in the next two movies after that as well.
3: Yeah, it was just cool that they like split up and were a team. I like in Star
2: Trek 5 where she is like having adorbs moments with Scotty, but then we get the fan dance, which is kind of interesting. So what do you guys think about the fan dance?
3: I didn't uh, realize it was Uhura at once. I was just like, what is happening? Why is there someone dancing? Aren't they guarding a brothel?
1: Yeah, or so, something like, like I that. don't understand why the fan dance would distract the people guarding a brothel. Like, <laughs> If a naked lady is going to distract you from that job, you shouldn't have
2: that job. <laughs> yeah, like, Kirk is like, we need a distraction. And it immediately what the like, leap to is, Uhura should do a fan dance. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh... I I have trouble with it. Like, Nichelle Nichols said she actually thought it was a really good scene and didn't think it was exploitative. That she, she thought that it had a reason in the plot. And her main challenge was to show that, like, Uhura was making this up on the spur of the moment. And that she wanted it to look good, but she didn't want it to look professional. But it does yeah. look, like, it looks really good. Yeah. And... I don't love it, but I also think it's cool that at this point, Nichelle Nichols was in her mid 50s. And so it did kind of challenge the ageism in
3: Hollywood around like women over 30 can't be sexy. Uh, I'm pretty sure Nichelle Nichols will be sexy until her dying breath. That woman is gorgeous. (laughs) and has charisma coming out of her ears.
0: Yeah. So essentially, if you want to be at Michelle Nichols's age and you want to fan dance, more power to you. You're going to look great doing it if you got that confidence.
2: Fan dance away. I mean, I think it was cool that it connected back to her scenes in TOS where she really, like you get to see the performer side of her, but then it just got left off for yeah. so long that it felt weird. So it would have been cool if we got to see her doing more of that, like playful performance stuff outside of being a honeypot in a plot. Yeah. It would have been cool to see her do more other things in the movies because she just she has like a few really cute moments in Star Trek four and five, but she doesn't have any really significant parts
3: in Star Trek three. She has that really annoying guy that is telling her that her career is over, and then she pulls a phaser on him and locks him in a closet. That's pretty yeah. awesome. I really like that that whole uh, crew stealing the Enterprise heist like thing. Anyway. But she does yeah. get a cool moment in that. Cool. I don't really think she does much in the motion picture, does she? I barely remember her in that. No. Nobody does much in the motion picture. That's true. <laughs> they, they watch the screens a long time as they slowly, slowly, slowly go somewhere.
0: It's important that we establish that they are going somewhere, in fact. <laughs> very. To boldly go very, very slowly.
2: Yeah, so I just wanted to close off with sort of just going around and seeing which movie do you guys think is the most problematic for women? And then we'll talk about which is just your personal favorite movie out of the ones we've talked about. So which, we'll maybe start with Sue, which movie do you think is just the most problematic for women?
1: Oh, I don't know. Why do I have to go first? Andy Andy can go first. (laughs) I'm just going to agree with Andy. Whatever. I,
3: (laughs) I defer. I don't think any of them are particularly horrible. And I don't think any of them are particularly great. I think we get good moments and bad moments, but across the board, they're just kind of in the middle.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not like I think about them and immediately one of them, you know, is waving a sexist red flag, but I think that Star Trek 3 is the weakest for women. I think that Ufura doesn't get much to do. Savik, what she gets to do is pretty gross, Um, and she also doesn't David basically dies to, to protect her and Spock, so she doesn't get to do anything cool around the Klingons. Um yeah. and then they Rosalind Franklin out Carol Marcus. So it just was yeah. really a sausage fest and I So I don't I don't think it was so horrible that I would never watch it because of how sexist it is. I just think it's the weakest movie for women.
3: I would also make a case for the motion picture just because Uhura doesn't get anything to do and then Ilya is kind of a mess. <laughs> um because I mean it's not even just the whole Delton thing and then she's killed off and then I don't know. I I think she might be the weakest main female character we get.
2: Actually, that's true. I just haven't watched Motion Picture as recently, um, but it's it's also pretty weak.
3: There's also a really terrible moment where she dies, right? And Decker supposedly loves her. That's what we've established. And then he uses her death as a way to get a shot in at Kirk's leadership. And I'm like, gross, really? This woman that you supposedly love just died and you're going to use that death as a way to undermine Kirk? Yuck. But that could just be because Decker's horrible and I hate him. Yep. And I hate his face.
2: (laughs) Uh, Grace or Sue, any other thoughts on problematic movies. I'm gonna say,
0: I said it before and I'll say it again, Star Trek 5 is always the one that just kind of jumps out at me because, oh my god, Kirk just killed that sex worker and no one's batting an eye. What the hell? That's the one that I always remember.
2: Yeah, that's pretty awful. Yeah. So far I'm about like three quarters of the way through Star Trek 5 and so far the the coolest thing that women have done is that Caitlin Dar, the Romulan diplomat, is like clearly the most with it of all the diplomats.
3: Oh, definitely, yeah. That's a very minor point. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she wasn't bad, but she also, I mean, she does not stack up with the other Romulan women at all. Also, she looks like she was designed by a kindergartner. It's true,
0: that hair.
2: That's
3: true. Uh, I did just like how she was clearly more
2: competent than the Federation guy who kept calling her dear. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I did like that. I mean, I just, I was sitting there and I was watching that and I'm like, man, Liviana Sharvonik would have turned this around by now. She would have just like totally taken off. Can you imagine Toreth in that scene? <laughs> oh
2: man, that would I have been
3: mean, great. that movie would have been over. Nobody would have had to rescue them. <laughs>
2: Also, a fun fact that a lot of people pointed out, which I'm just going to mention because quickly um, after our Romulan women episode is that they actually were trying to cast the actress who played the Romulan commander in the Enterprise incident as Toref in Next Generation, but the actress wasn't available. But just a fun fact that a lot of people mentioned. So I thought I would throw that in totally randomly.
3: Because we love Romulan women. Yeah, I would have loved that. Yeah, I mean, I would. She was great. I think
1: it's really interesting that all of the movies were pointing out that aren't as strong. We, we fall Right along the, the even odd divide of what is a good Star Trek movie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pretty much, yeah.
2: So so let's uh, just go around and see what was your favorite Star Trek movie. It doesn't have to be because you think it's the most feminist, but just which one makes you happiest?
1: For me, it's four.
2: <laughs> yep.
1: I, I have no problem saying that. And it is ridiculous. And that's a lot of why I love it. But I feel like four is the one that also is the most Star Trek to me in terms of hope for the future. And that comes from that scene with McCoy in the hospital when the the woman is there for dialysis and he's like, are you kidding me? Take this pill. And not, you know, like three minutes later there are these stunned doctors around here like, are you kidding me? And she's just being wheeled down the hallway screaming, you know, the doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. She's
0: so happy!
1: It's just the idea of what we can do in the future and that makes me happy.
3: Yeah. I think it's interesting the way you asked the question was, which one makes you happiest I would say happiest is four as well because the whole time (laughs) I was watching four I was like is this really happening like Sulu's wearing a leather cape and wandering around San Francisco and Chekhov asking people where the nuclear vessels are and just that movie is fun just straight up fun and Vulcan Mr. Miyagi spock rocking the headband oh my god but i would say that probably the best star trek movie for me is probably wrath of khan just because i feel like it hit me the hardest emotionally I wouldn't say it made me happy because it left me broken, sobbing mess. But I mean, as far as emotional impact goes, I don't think you can top Wrath of Khan.
2: I would laugh the most at Star Trek 4, for sure. But I think like Star Trek 6 actually resonates the most for me. Like Star Trek 2 is an amazing movie and probably the one that I would rewatch one of the most. But Star Trek 6, just the political themes are something I'm really into. And I, I really like the tension and the, you know, seeing that the Enterprise crew is is not infallible um, and needs to rise above their own prejudices and i
3: really like that about it so yeah Yeah, i mean i just literally finished this about an hour ago and i really liked that movie too i mean it's it's a really strong movie the plot is really strong the allegory is really strong and the characterization is really strong so that's all really exciting to be honest i like them all in different ways except for Five is clearly the weakest for me, but even Five has those awesome campfire scenes where they sing, row, row, row your boat, and I don't know why. If they had just kept that movie in
2: Yellowstone National Park, it would have been amazing. Like, just...
1: Yeah. and But, like, the boys go camping? <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek Five camping.
3: <laughs> no. <laughs> it kind of felt like, like science fiction grumpy old men. Yeah. I mean, Spock McCoy and Kirk camping for an hour and a half. I would watch that. We can point you to some fanfics.
1: Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just assuming there's fanfic. Uh, T.O. I don't read T.O.S. <laughs>
2: Um, Except for the part where then Kirk starts being like, I've always known I'll die alone. And you're like, way to totally harsh the buzz, (laughs) Kirk.
3: (laughs) It's like, we're just trying to eat whiskey beans and uh, toast marshmallows here, man. Stop making it weird. That's what he calls a marshmallow. (laughs) Oh,
2: right. You know,
3: all of the movies,
2: well, not all of them, but the majority of the movies have the theme about confronting aging and feeling not useful. And I don't think that Uhura really gets to play as much of a part in that as she could because I think that the the pressure um, around aging and ageism is different for women. Um, for men, it's a lot. It is a lot about like your usefulness as a like a provider and your ability to live up to masculinity, masculine ideals, and like climb the biggest mountains. And <laughs> for women, it's also confronting um, the pressures that you know you've never had a family. Um, I mean, Kirk is talking about dying alone, but it's I think there's more pressure on women that you know you didn't do what you were supposed to do if you didn't have kids, and that you're supposed to be less attractive and things like that. So. Star Trek 5 kind of challenged that for women, but I don't think it was addressed thematically in the same way that it was for the male characters. would have been nice
0: to have seen it addressed specifically, like just straight on.
2: Word. So Grace, now you're back. Do you want to share your favorite favorite of the movies?
0: My favorite is actually Star Trek 6, The Undiscovered Country, because it is so big and flamboyant and over the top, and I love it. It spends so much of the movie just flirting with being campy and kitschy. And that's part of why I like it. I like that it's aware that it's kind of silly, but trying to be very serious. And that just makes it a fun watch for me. Also, it's just a fun movie. You get political intrigue. You get all that espionage stuff going on. You get a prison break. You get aliens. You get such aliens. You get the most alien looking of aliens. And I feel like they really just went the full mile with what you can do with a Star Trek movie in that one. And I just love it.
2: Yeah, um, because I totally forgot to mention that I love the out of context Shakespeare quotes that
3: Kang yes. <laughs> just yells <laughs> randomly. <laughs> um, I was like, I wondered why they got Christopher Plummer, and then as soon as he started ch- quoting Shakespeare, I was like, Oh, okay. This why is wouldn't why. you
2: get yeah, Christopher Plummer? <laughs> I read his memoirs, and there's a big section in his memoirs about when he was at Stratford and Shatner was vying for roles against him, and it's pretty great. Like, it's just really fun to read. But the the eye patch staple to his face, or like. (laughs) nailed into his face is so amazingly badass. I mean, now that I appreciate more about Shakespeare than I did when I was like nine years old, it's definitely more like hard to take seriously when he's just literally reading lines up that make no sense um but it's pretty awesome like he owns that role
3: it's christopher Plummer. you could have him do anything and people would watch it but yeah i mean as soon as he came on to the uh the enterprise and he had that eye patch i was like this guy is 100 percent a part of whatever shenanigans are about to occur (laughs) like that is very obvious he's got an eye patch
2: Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of Women at Warp. Um, if you want to let us know what you thought, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at crew at women at warp.com or join the discussion on our Facebook page at Women at Warp or tweet us at Women at Warp. Did I list all the things? Visit our website <laughs> at women at com.
1: <laughs> if you're trying to find us, just search for Women at Warp. Yeah, basically.
2: So my name's Jera, and uh, thanks for joining us. If you want to uh, find my stuff elsewhere on the internet, I'm at trekkiefeminist.tamblr.com. Andy, where can people find you?
3: Well, I am just about to start Deep Space Nine, and you can uh, follow me on Twitter at First Time trek if you want to catch with that. And Sue?
1: You can find more for me over at Anomalypodcast.com and in June I am going to be watching the animated series and blogging about it. Awesome.
0: I'm Grace. You can find me on Twitter at, at BoneCrusherJank. You can listen to my previous episodes of All Things Trek on Trek Radio.
2: Thanks very much.